there is no depravity in earning interest on a loan, or by extension, by earning interest on money or profit on money that's invested in some business venture. Neither the Old Testament or the New Testament condemn those activities. Some look at a passage like Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47, and disagree. Let me read that to you. This is New Testament, the early days of the church. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and all had things in common. They, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And some see that passage as perhaps a form of primitive Christian communism. But that is a gross misunderstanding of that text. That is not what's going on there. The early church was not communistic. They were acting in love. Totally different. This was not forced. This was not compelled. This was not atheistic, like Mark Griffin says. This is love, voluntary love, not compulsory, forced taxation or giving. This passage in Acts chapter 2 is not an economic prescription, but rather an, econo- or rather an expressive description of what love looks like between fellow Christians. So no, there is nothing inherently wrong with making a profit. There's nothing innately immoral with capitalism. And there is no depravity on earning interest on a loan or by extension money invested in some business venture. But is there any such thing as an ill-gotten profit? Can capitalism be abused? Is it possible to charge too much interest on money loans? The biblical answer is yes. The legitimacy of a business venture must be measured against the biblical concept of fairness, righteousness, justice, and, above all, love. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we will observe capitalism gone wrong. Jews profiting off of the misfortune of fellow Jews. Jews taking advantage of their brothers who are in a position of economic vulnerability. We'll also observe another example of principled leadership on the part of Nehemiah, as he not only scolds those involved in such abusive practices as are outlined here, but we'll also see not only does he scold those who are doing the wrong thing, but he practices what he preaches. It's not do as I say, but not as I do with Nehemiah. In fact, with most leadership, with all good leadership, it's never do as I say and not as I do. Parents would like to think that, wouldn't they? We don't have we don't have to do the right thing. We just need to tell our kids to do the right thing. We need to tell them not to cheat on their test at school. How dare you cheat on that test at school? And then we brag around the dinner table about how we cheated on our income test. They see through that. They see through hypocrisy. How old do you have to be to see through hypocrisy? About a year and a half, maybe. Maybe maybe one year old. People can spot that a mile away. 
No, the whole idea of leadership saying, do as I say and not as I do, that is not a biblical concept. And that's really not a concept of good leadership anywhere at any time. Now, maybe leadership, maybe tyrannical leadership or despotic leadership, but not good leadership. Good leadership is not hypocritical. Or to put it a positive way, good leadership is genuine, sincere, and honest. Living consistently with the responsibilities that that same leadership places upon others. Hypocritical leadership is despotic. Hypocritical leadership is often tyrannical. Guard yourself against such leadership. The New Testament asks you to guard yourself against such leadership. That's why so many pains are taken in the pastoral epistles to outline a behavior that is expected of one who would occupy the office of either deacon or elder. And so many times I have heard well-meaning Christians say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. And they throw that whole thing out. All those qualifications, they just throw them out the window as if they didn't matter, as if God the Holy Spirit didn't write them. There's a reason. And if there's one thing that the pastoral the elder requirements, the pastor requirements, which are the same thing, the deacon requirements, if there's one thing that those requirements say is that good leadership, godly leadership, must be unhypocritical. Not perfect. Nobody expects that. God knows better than that. But it must be unhypocritical. So we're to guard our, ourselves against that kind of leadership. That's the kind of leadership that might, for example, legislate a mandatory and deeply flawed health care plan for you, and then exempt themselves from it. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that's ever happened, but let's just say it did happen. That would be bad leadership. That would be leadership that is hypocritical. It's okay for everybody else, but not for me and my family. Now, that's just one example from the political realm. But there are many, many examples that happen that way all the time. A group of elites get together and they prescribe something for everybody else. This is what Francis Schaeffer back in the late 70s, early 80s was, was so prophetic about when he prophesied, basically, and I use that word in a very loose sense, that that was going to be the problem for the 80s, 90s, and beyond. That there would be a group of intellectual elites that would prescribe for everybody else. They would be the leaders. They would prescribe for everybody else. But they themselves would not be bound to the prescriptions that they gave to others. Now, we're going to see in this chapter, Nehemiah is not that kind of leader. He does make prescriptions for others. And then he turns around and not only follows them, but goes the extra mile and does things that he doesn't want to do. Nehemiah was anything but a hypocritical leader. He was the opposite of a hypocritical leader. He was a genuine leader. He was a sincere leader, and he was an honest leader who lived consistently with the responsibilities that he called other people to follow. One bit of background to remind you, since we were not here last week, up to until this point in the book, most of Nehemiah's challenges with regard to his principal leadership have come from outside of the Jewish community. Remember Sanballat? Remember Tobiah? These two little, we call them little worms, because that's basically what they were. These two folks were upset, these and others, were upset that someone had even come from Persia to check on the welfare of Jerusalem. And then they were angry. And they found out that part of the plan was to rebuild the wall. And then they were apoplectic. That's really what happened. When they found out, when they found out that the wall was really being rebuilt. Remember those guys? As we finished last time, they were threatening violence on the people that were rebuilding the wall. And that was 
bad enough. It was surely that caused Nehemiah anxiety. It was anxiety that he turned over to the Lord. But it was still anxiety. Now in chapter 5, the challenges, in my view, are actually more intense than they were in the previous four chapters. Because the challenges that Nehemiah faces in this chapter are not so much from foreigners outside of the Jewish community, but the challenges coming up in this chapter are from people within the Jewish community. This challenge comes from within. And when challenges come from those closest to us, they are frequently more painful than other kinds of challenges. This is a tough chapter for Nehemiah. In the first five verses, the challenges that he faces are outlined. Read along with me, if you will. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of famine. Then in verse 4, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5, And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters were forced into bondage already, and were helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. First, the people face a food shortage. They're saying here that they need to get grain for food to keep themselves and their families alive. Legitimate need. Their work on the wall, these are the people that are working on the wall, by the way. The people that are issuing this complaint or this thing that turned out to be a challenge for Nehemiah. These are the good guys. They're the ones that are working on the wall. But working on the wall made it next to impossible for them also to bring in their crops. And this crop failure here is called a famine. I guess it matters whether weather or the failure to be able to work on it. Either way, if you can't eat, that's a famine. Second, others had grain, but they had to get it by mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, and their homes. Third, others, still others, not wanting to mortgage their property, had to borrow money from their Jewish brothers. That's the key to this whole chapter. They had to borrow money from their Jewish brothers to pay property taxes to the king of Persia. This problem was compounded by the fact that they were being charged exorbitant interest rates by their own Jewish brothers. There's a term that's going to come up in this passage called usury. Usury, at least in the biblical context, is not just interest. It's not just charging interest on a loan. It's charging excessive interest on a loan. And when we get to that part of the passage, I think you're going to be very interested to see what Nehemiah considers excessive interest to be charged from one Jew to another Jew. Actually, it should be Jew according to the Israel's law. But we're going to see what he considered to be usually interest. And this led finally to a fourth problem. To repay their creditors, this group had to sell, or many of this group had to sell their children into slavery. Now, that's not a good situation. I hope you would all agree. I anticipate an objection, and I think some people might think, after hearing some of this, well, okay, but these people must have made some bad decisions along the way. 
maybe some poor economic decisions. And they put themselves in this bad position. In the first place, they have no one but themselves to blame. I don't feel sorry for them. Okay, let's go slowly here. You've heard the phrase, business is business, haven't you, all of us? Well, business is not business, biblically. Business is not business when dealing with family. And as far as God is concerned, Israel was one big family. It was his family. They were his children. You've seen that terminology over and over again in Scripture, especially Old Testament. Israel was family. And according to God, according to Nehemiah's thinking for God in this passage, there should have been certain considerations given because of the particulars of this situation. Did they deserve any kind of grace? Who knows? Were they guilty of making bad decisions? I don't know. The text doesn't really tell us. Maybe not. It's altogether possible that the people that had borrowed the money were the ones that were interested in working on the wall. The people that were loaning the money were not the people working on the wall. I don't know. I don't know if they deserved it or not. That's not the message of this text. Maybe they have made bad decisions to put themselves in that position. I don't know. That's not the message here. But God does expect, He did expect, the brothers, the Jewish brothers, who were in a stronger position, in this case economically, but it could apply to many different things. But He expected those who were in a stronger position at that moment to show some grace. Absolutely He did. The way Nehemiah sees it is that some of these Jews were taking advantage of the difficulties of other Jews in order to enrich themselves. We even have rules and regulations in the city of Houston about price gouging. When a hurricane comes through, and people say, well, you should be able to charge whatever you want to charge. Maybe, maybe not. The city of Houston says no. A secular institution like the city of Houston says no to that. You don't get to take advantage of people when people are at their weakest. Some of these normal rules have to be called off and there's a law that comes that's much, much higher than laws of strict capitalism. It's called a law of love. And when a community suffers a terrible disaster, then certain economic realities must be set aside, and there needs to be an overlay of love, because at that point, everybody in your neighborhood is one of your family. And the last hurricane came through. Third Lake was supposed to evacuate, but I think we were on the very last street, maybe the last block, but didn't actually have to. So I revolted and I didn't evacuate. I was one of the only two people on our street, and probably one of the only two people in that part of Third Lake not to evacuate. And some of you are laughing because you made personal phone calls to me, begging me to get out there, but I didn't want to go. My son David was there with me that night, and Tim was okay with it, but my son David was with me there that night. And as the winds kept getting a little stronger throughout the day, he said, Man, are you really, are you sure about this? <laughs> Are you sure we're doing the right thing? Well, you know, I know the people on our block. I, I know them all the ways through. But you know, that particular night, I also found out that there were, was an elderly couple, one of the man, the man has since died, that was right down the street. I found out that they stayed too. People from our block were calling me all night long. Well, how's it going? What's the intensity of the storm? Have you gone down and checked on these particular Oh, yeah. During that disaster, there was a common bond that we all shared. And whatever I had was theirs, whatever they had was mine. 
and I was going to, I checked on some things for some people that since then, in a couple years, I know I talked to a couple of them more than one or two times. But for that time, in that disaster, we were part of a family. The Jews in this chapter are going through a really difficult time. And the Jews, not just for this difficult time, but in all times, were supposed to be family, especially in the, in the broader context of living among the nations. There was something special about Israel. They were God's chosen people. We studied that in Genesis. The whole line of Abraham, the whole blessing by association of Abraham. Remember we studied in Genesis chapter 12, if you bless them, I'm going to bless you. If you curse them, I'm going to curse you. But it also gave responsibility of Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to others. There was a responsibility for a certain behavior that was above the bar for most behaviors that these Jews had a responsibility to execute because they represented God. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. I believe it's a New Testament concept in the body of Christ. Now, we're not Israel. We're not the new Israel. There is a future for Israel. But in the body of Christ, we're God's representative. Paul even calls us an ambassador for Christ. As though God was entreating through us. As though God is making his case through us. Well, that's you, but that's a little scary. For me, that's a little scary. To know that God has me up and you up and all of us up before the public as a witness to his goodness and a witness to his kindness and a witness to his love. And so it's a legitimate question that we have to ask ourselves from time to time. When the community sees us, do they see anything of love in us? Do they see anything of Christ in us? Or is it business is business? If it is, then we're not doing our job as ambassadors for Christ as we ought to. Uh, once again, there's nothing inherently wrong with capitalism. There's nothing wrong with, with earning a profit. There's nothing wrong with charging interest. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with those things. But we're going to see in this chapter, those things being set aside for time for a greater good. Not just for the people involved that are hurting these categories of people I just got, but also for the people outside of the covenant community that are watching to see how this covenant community behaves. Even on the level of a local church. Do, do people know people that go to our local church and say, you know what? If that guy goes there, I'll never go there. People watch. They watch the body of Christ and they watch individual churches. You are a reflection not only of Jesus Christ, you're a reflection of your local church, the Pine Valley Bible. That's what I said. I don't think we're going to get a golf cap for it just yet. We're going to have to. We're going to have to get to where I can make a four foot putt consistently before we get to half. I'll be allowed to get a half just because other folks are. Nehemiah sees this. He sees this situation. That's what he evaluates. His evaluation, he says that there are certain of the Jews, now this is a family affair now, there are certain of the Jews that are taking advantage of other Jews. And he's not happy about it at all. Look at verse 6. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I consulted with myself, meaning he prayed. He had some time of quiet reflection and prayer. 
Then I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I had a big meeting, brought everybody in. I said, You guys are not doing the right thing. You're not behaving ethically. In this context, you're not behaving ethically. I said to them, According to our ability, we have, according to our ability, redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent, could not find a word to say. And I, again I said, The thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? People are watching. Don't you think you should behave in a certain way if you're an ambassador for Yahweh? Verse 10, And likewise, I and my brothers, my servants, are lending money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain. By the way, that hundredth part, I told you I'd tell you what it means. That is compounded, if you did that on an annual basis, that's 12%. Likewise, I and my brothers and my servants, this is verse 10, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Verse 12, and they said, we will give it back. We will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise, even thus may he be shaken out and into. You know what that's saying? You're not doing that thing, he's going to go broke. All this money you got stored up that you're lending out at usurious interest rates. This is, this is in this situation in Nehemiah chapter 5. You don't do the right thing. You took an oath. You don't do the right thing. You don't deserve anything you got. Remember we talked about Italianic justice several weeks ago? The punishment fits the crime. Ironic justice. That's one of these things. And all the assembly said, Amen! And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. I'm glad to hear that. Back to verse 6, though. This verse clearly describes Nehemiah's reaction at hearing these complaints. This situation. He's hot. He's so angry that he's incensed. He's so incensed that he's grieved. All of that is implied in that word. Mad, angry, and sense grieved all at the same time. He has an intense emotional reaction. How could they do this to each other? They have been the recipients of God's grace, but refused to show it to us. I've heard the whole idea of being a self-made man, a self-made woman. I've heard that most of my life. I think that's part of our culture. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out there really aren't any self-made men and self-made women. That with just a, a slight twist of circumstances, it could have worked out radically different, even some of the smartest and the brightest and the best. I was thinking about this today at lunch, and, and uh, just sitting with somebody eating at a restaurant. I was thinking about this idea of everybody being different today. I went to a car from where I was sitting. There was a man that was looking at me, and he was just staring at me. And I, you know, I'm a pretty good-looking guy. I don't, I don't mind, but, you know, 
I know he wasn't staring at me because of my good looks. I know that. But it, it bothered me a little bit. And, and so, I, you know, I looked away. And I looked back over and he's still staring at me. I looked look back over and the same time I said, no, Chris, come on, man. You know, I'm, not, I'm no celebrity. Believe me, I'm no celebrity. I don't look like any celebrity. But then I realized that the man had obviously had some sort of neurological because he was looking at, at me with that almost, uh, you know what, what a Parkinsonian stare is, almost that Parkinsonian stare. And I noticed as I looked even further, I thought it was his wife at first that he was leaning over, but obviously it's not his wife. I looked down and he had his hand to watch. And I felt kind of bad about being even irritated with the fellow with the second hand. And uh, I didn't say anything to him, but I, I wouldn't. But it was just uncomfortable for me. And then the idea, because I knew I was going to teach this tonight, the idea of this passage kind of came to my mind. We're all the recipients of God's blessing. Every single one of us could be just like that man tomorrow. Full of God's blessing. And we think that when we exercise and we work out and we take vitamins and we run, it makes it certain that that will never happen to us. No, no, no. That's, that, that's not true. We've all been the recipients of God's blessing. No matter how smart we are, no matter how healthy we think that we are. You've heard that phrase? But for the grace of God, there is a way. So I don't think the point of this passage is to look at the people who were having a problem in verses 1 through 5 and say they had a chance. They should have made better decisions. Let them be the product of their own decisions. Let them reap what they've sown. Not in this context of the covenant community. When they're trying to get a wall built, and the people that are in trouble are the ones that are building the wall, and the people outside are doing what they think is very legitimate and righteous and fair, but it's not legitimate and righteous and fair in that circumstance. Because it's a family. Israel's a family. And there were rules within that family. If you had time, you could go all the way back to the Mosaic Law and see the rules against charging usurious interest rates to a fellow Jew. Or even some passages that say you ought not to charge any interest rate at all to a fellow Jew. Make no mistake, all of us are where we are because of the grace of God. And I mean that in a good way. We're, in, we're where we are in the sense of blessing because of the grace of God. And we've got to remember that. Sometimes we're so busy demanding our rights that we forget God has set aside a lot of people so that we might it appears as though Nehemiah and some of his fellow Jews, this probably before Nehemiah shows up in Jerusalem, have actually paid money to Babylonian captors to free some of these Jewish people who were now in Jerusalem. You see what I mean? Nehemiah, before he comes, finds out that there are certain Jews that are in some sort of economic slavery. He's paid money to have those Jews released so that they can go to Jerusalem. And you see why he's a little angry? Because he released them from economic slavery in Babylonia or Persia, wherever it might have been, so that they can come to Jerusalem and live free. And now when he gets to Jerusalem, he finds out that some of the very people that he paid so that they could be free are now again in economic captivity by some of their fellow Jews. No wonder he's really, really upset about that. That ought not to be. It's very inconsistent for the Jews in Jerusalem to enslave all over again this same group that has previously been 
to redeem. Nehemiah seems himself to have made loans to some of the poor Jews in, Ju- in Judah. He hadn't been there long, but it seems like he himself had even loaned money, though it appears as though he didn't charge interest to these people. And now he calls on everybody to stop charging interest on the loans that they make to their fellow Jewish family members. This is a broad family. He believes the haves should give, not lend, to the have-nots out of love for God and their brethren. You know, the bottom, one of the bottom lines of this passage is sometimes in life there are more significant things than making a profit. I open this by saying there's nothing wrong with making a profit. There's nothing morally wrong with capitalism. I am a capitalist through and through. There's nothing wrong with investing in a business and making money. That's not what we're talking about tonight. This is a different situation. But there may be times in our life where we come upon a situation where you might just want to see the devil and give a brother some money if they need it. Or at least if you're going to loan it to them, loan it to them with no interest. I know this goes against the grain, but it also goes with Nehemiah chapter 7. I'm going to repeat one more time so that nobody misunderstands. There is nothing inherently wrong with making a profit. There is nothing innately immoral with capitalism. And there is no depravity in earning interest on a loan or making money on a business loan. But significance in life is not simply about turning a nice profit. There is much more at stake in Nehemiah chapter 5 than turning a profit. These are the people of God. These are God's chosen people. Therefore, as representatives of God, God's reputation is what's at stake. One of the purposes of the Mosaic Law was to make Israel a peculiar people unto the nation. That's one of the reasons why they couldn't eat pork. Not that pork was not bad, but the pagans sacrificed pork to their God. So the Jews weren't having anything to do with something that the pagans sacrificed to their God. A peculiar people unto their neighbors. Well, if they were acting just like their neighbors, they're not a peculiar people. There's, there's nothing to look up to. I think that's probably why Paul prohibited Christians from taking certain legal actions against other Christians in public secular courts. Because there was more at stake in Corinth than just getting what you had coming to you. That's why Paul says it's better just to be wrong. Just be wrong. Rather than bring down the reputation of the church of Corinth and the reputation of Jesus Christ. Again, usually it was not just interest charged, but it was excessive interest charged. That's the primary thing that Nehemiah is arguing against. In verses 14 through 19, we see a shining example of practicing what you preach. Well, I can probably say, do as I do. Or just do as I say. Do as I do. Look at verse 14. Moreover, from that day, I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. The governor's food allowance is an allowance that was paid for by the Persian court. So that the governor, in a particular region, the outlying region would eat well, would be dressed well, would eat well, and would be uh, 
picture of Persians in our to the people. But when Nehemiah says this, for the whole time I was there, for the whole 12 years, I didn't take what I had coming to me. I could have had a lot more. I didn't take what I had coming to me. But the former governors who were there before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants servant domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah says, no, I'm not going to do that. The, the people before him not only ate all of the provisions from Persia, but took more from the people. These were oppressive leaders. These were tyrannical leaders. These were despotic leaders that came before Nehemiah. He said, I'm not going to do that. Well, I have a right to do it, but I'm not going to do it. It's the same thing Paul says at one point. Don't I have a right to take a wife? Peter has a wife. Why is it just that I and Barnabas are not, can't have a wife? He voluntarily didn't do it for the furthering of God's plan. He had a right to, nothing wrong with it. Nehemiah could have eaten the governor's allowance. Now, he would have been wrong to, to take 40 shekels more and to take the people's bread. But he had every right, but he doesn't do it. Because he feared God. Now, that means he was afraid of God's retribution, but he also respected God. In verse 16, I also appoint, applied myself to any work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered together for the work. Apparently, previous governors used some of the money, probably that 40 shekels, taken from everybody, to enrich themselves by buying up all the land. That's how they used They abused their power to buy land, which would further enrich them so that they could abuse the people. There are, there are leaders all over the world that do that. All over the world. And that is wrong. That's bad leadership. But he also says, the reason I didn't just tell people to work on the wall. I got the, I'm, at the, I'm at the work. I am out there doing it. We saw that last time the people were working. Part of Nehemiah's job, that was his role, was to, to search everything all day long and to make sure they weren't being attacked. You had a tougher standing next to him, remember that? And that's not an easy job. When you're the lookout, you've got to be on the lookout all the time. He says, I applied myself to the work on this wall. I didn't just encourage other people to do it. I got up and got my hands dirty too. If it's that important, then I shouldn't just be telling people, for Jerusalem, you get out and work on that wall. He went there to do it. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations who were around us. Very generous. 150 people eating lunch with you? Dinner? Breakfast? That's a lot of people to feed. He could have kept all that for himself. But he's very generous with the allowance that he's getting from the Persian poor. Now, this is a leader. This is a leader who practices what he preaches. No wonder people follow him. This is an example of principled leadership. So many people want to be a leader because they think they'll enrich themselves. They'll empower themselves. They'll separate themselves from the masses. And they'll be up here and everybody else will be down here. That's not a good leader. A leader has the best interest of the people that they lead in mind at all times. And then in verse 18, Now that which was prepared for us each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Verse 19 again. Read it with me as we close. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. 
according to all that I have done for Israel. Just think of that. You see, both Old Testament and New Testament, when the word remember comes up, it's not just a passive recalling to mind the past. We, we talk about this in the communion section when Jesus said, remember me. It's not just a passive intellectual activity. There's typically an activity that takes place with it, a spiritual activity. In the case of the bread and the cup, they're taking the, the bread and they're eating it. And that's representative of who Jesus Christ was. We're drinking it. That's representative of what he did. So there's a thought process, but there's actually action taking place. It's not as though God has forgotten that he sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem. That's not what he means by that. He's asking to be blessed. Remember me, oh my God, for good, for blessing, according to all that I have done for this people. This is an interesting text. I found it interesting. The Bible is not against capitalism. Please don't come to me and try to argue with that. Christianity is not communistic. Please don't come and try to argue with that. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. Of course, there's nothing wrong with making a profit. But there are times and situations where the making of a profit might not be the most important thing in life. And in this situation, some of the normal, usual, customary economic practices needed to be set aside so that God's plan would move forward and that God's reputation would not be in the least bit hindered with regard to those who are looking from the outside. So what you didn't make enough profit? So what? You might have lost a buck or two on, how, on that money that you should have invested somewhere else. I know what you're thinking. So what? The message of chapter 5 is, when in doubt, in these situations, when in doubt, just turn.